Welcome to the State Bar of Texas podcast, your monthly source for conversations and curated content to improve your law practice with your host, Rocky Deer. Hi, and welcome to the State Bar of Texas podcast. Every couple of years in September, we lawyers welcome a new set of laws enacted by the Texas legislature. If you're like me, you don't really think about it or pay much attention to it until you hit an issue where the law has changed and then you run around like a crazy person trying to figure out what that change was, what it means, and how you keep yourself out of trouble. Or you can be like lots of other Texas lawyers and read up on upcoming changes in the Texas Bar Journal. Or you can be like my guest today and actually get ahead of the issues and maybe even write about them in the Texas Bar Journal. When you open up your September 2023 edition of the Bar Journal, you will notice that it is chock full of informative updates and new pieces of legislation. You probably won't notice it right away, though, because, well, first you'll read the humor column in the back and then peek at the disciplinary actions, but pretend that you are reading about colleagues who are, quote, on the move. It's okay. We all do it. Once you're done with those, though, do check out those updates. We'll be talking about two of those updates today with the authors who wrote them. Jerry Bullard is board certified in appellate law and practices in Grapevine, Texas at the firm of Adams, Lynch, and Lofton. We could not have picked a better source, of course. He is past chair of the state bar appellate section. He wrote the update on civil litigation and appellate law. Be sure and check it out. Now, all lawyers know the drill. It's a Labor Day barbecue. You get asked a legal question, and there's a decent chance the question is a family law question. We all have it happen. We know. Well, Crystal Thompson is here to update us on family law changes from the legislature so you can sound really smart to all your family and friends. Now, Crystal practices in San Antonio at Langley and Bannock, where she is board certified in family law and is the president-elect of the Texas Academy of Family Law Specialists. We have a couple of heavy hitters here today, folks. So, Jerry and Crystal, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having us. I appreciate being here. Absolutely. So first of all, I, I got to ask both of you, what prompted you guys to go through and actually write these articles? I mean, this this can't, this is not like a fun article to write. This is heavy stuff. W what kind of inspired you to say, all right, I'm, I'm going to go write about legislative updates and go through statutory changes and actually write about it? Well, for almost 15 years now, I've been a part of what first started with the Family Law Council. Like Jerry, I'm a former chair of the Family Law Section in the State Bar of Texas. And we, once upon a time before the McDonald case, had a legislative committee that helped uh, draft, analyze, educate on new Texas family law statutes. And sure. I, unlike Jerry, I'm a one-trick pony. I only do family law. I stay in the family <laughs> code. I have blinders on as it relates to everything else. And so I have been involved in the legislative process in one fashion or another for the last 15 years. Um, more recently, we've shifted our legislative efforts over to the Texas Family Law Foundation, where I'm a co-chair with Judge Jack Marr of the Legislative Committee. Interesting. Okay. Jerry, how about you? Because I mean, this, this makes you look kind of nerdy. Uh, let's just be honest. <laughs> I mean... Well, and I'll tell you, I embrace the nerdiness. So <laughs> Crystal does a great job of keeping track of, of, of the family law changes. And of course, we have lots of sections who do just what she does and what I do. Uh, you know, I got started actually keeping track of legislative changes, whether they change or not, bills going through the process back in 2004, I think it was, when I started monitoring legislation for the judiciary and some civil lawyers up in the Dallas-Fort Worth area that wanted to keep tabs about what was going on. And so I started doing this once 
like I said, 2004, and it's kind of evolved into where I just monitored everything I could related to civil justice, judiciary, appellate. Uh, so I, I cover a little bit more territory than Crystal does, but I gladly stay away from Crystal's turf because it's just <laughs> that's a whole new, it's a whole different world. And so I've been doing this for quite a while, and I do I do an update throughout the throughout the, each legislative session that I email uh, to those who are on my on my list, and that be, that could be judges, that could be trial lawyers, appellate lawyers, legislative staffers are on the list. So I've been doing this for a long time. So. All that to say, it's easy for me to convert my little updates throughout the session into an article, so it's easy to do. Uh, that's a long-winded answer, but that's that's why I do what I do, and I like I like doing it. So, well, we appreciate it, and it's it's interesting reading through the updates. It looks like, you know, for non-lawyers, I don't know if the word exciting would necessarily be the appropriate word, but for lawyers, there's there's a lot going on. I mean, there's there's some big updates. So, Jerry, let's maybe start with some of your updates here. We've got we've got big news that a lot of folks might not have been aware of. We're we're about to have a new 15th Court of Appeals and a new business trial court system. That that sounded pretty groundbreaking. So, why don't you walk us through those? To me, this is this session was a seismic shift in civil trial and civil, and, and appellate practice that we quite we haven't really seen in a while. Let's start with the business court proposal. That was HB 19. You know, there's been a business court proposal uh, that's been introduced in the legislature, I think, every session since 2015. And is is, is this going to be like, kind of like how you have a family court, is this going to be a totally separate set of courts? So you're going to have business judges, or is this going to be a different track within the main county and district courts? Oh, this will be a whole new trial court system. And what it does is it, and in a nutshell, it creates a, a civil trial court to hear a specific category or series of categories of business-related litigation cases. You know, it could be businesses with disputes with, with other businesses. It could be shareholder disputes. You know, there, there are lots of different ways that you can get into this court, uh, but there is a amount of controversy, you know, structure. And I've got like, I, I kind of have a two-tier process. There's one tier, that's $10 million in controversy, and that involves a lot of commercial disputes. Uh, there's a there's a tier two, which is $5 million in controversy. Those are business governance issues. And so there's a supplemental jurisdiction deal. So, I mean, there's a lot of nuances to this, and I could, I could go on forever, but no one wants, me, wants to hear me do that. But there's a lot to this bill. What's interesting, though, is it's a business trial court system that would obviously help businesses get faster resolutions within in the court system and maybe avoid things like arbitration or having to settle out. What what I didn't see in the update, and I don't know if you've got any insights on this, I didn't see anything aimed at consumers, helping consumers who have issues with businesses to help them streamline the process. Because, I mean, everybody knows how expensive it can be for a normal consumer to have to go after a business that has wronged them. So do, do you have any insight on that? Well, I, this structure was created by design. And if you listen to the testimony uh, that we heard in the House and the Senate, uh, there, there, there was a, I mean, there was intentional to create a, a a structure that deals with these high dollar types of disputes. And there was also con- concerns among some legislators that, like the average business owner, wouldn't have to fall into this category because usually when you get in this sort of dispute, you have big law firms on each side, mm-hmm. and maybe the smaller law, smaller business can't afford that. Uh, sure. So there was lots of reasons for that, for them to be kind of cut out. Some of it was because the legislators in these in these smaller areas didn't want to be a part of it. 
And so, you know, this was a heavily negotiated bill, even though there have been several proposals in previous sessions. So, And and what's with this 15th Court of Appeals? That's going to be in Austin from from what the update says. But what's there's some nuances to it. Okay, well, that one's interesting, too. It's got it's got a history. Uh, You know, every previous business trial court bill or business court bill had a separate court of appeals just to hear business disputes. This one did not. And and the reason being is because that the legislature wanted to create a separate court of appeals to hear really specialized uh, disputes involving suits against governmental agencies uh, and also to hear challenges to constitutionality of statutes. But added to this particular bill, the court of appeals bill, was the business court of appeals. So, yeah, this is something that kind of came out of the past few sessions. So there was there was going to be a, another court of appeals to handle a specialized state court, but they added the business court appeals to this one, in my opinion, probably to give it more jurisdiction, but also to give it more business because there was some concern that that other court would not have enough business to justify having new judges, you know, another level of judges to sit on. Got it. Got it. Well, now, guys, we're going to come back in just a second. We're going to talk real quick about there's been a slight change to the attorney disciplinary procedures, and then we're going to talk about family law. And Crystal's going to Crystal's going to get out her crystal ball, and we're going to talk about what's what's in the offing for that. So stay tuned. Let's hear from one of our sponsors, and then we will be back in just a couple of minutes. The Texas Lawyers Assistance Program provides confidential help for Texas lawyers, law students, and judges who have problems with substance use and mental health issues. TLAP offers 24-7 confidential support and can connect you to peers and providers for assistance. TLAP can also connect you to the Sheeran Crowley Lawyer Wellness Trust, which provides financial help to Texas lawyers, law students, and judges who need treatment for substance use, depression, and other mental health issues but can't afford to pay for services. Call or text TLAP anytime at one 800 343-8527. And we're back, guys. I, I didn't think legislative updates would be this interesting, but Jerry and Crystal, you guys make it interesting. Now, Crystal, I, I do want to hear from, from you here, and I, and I know our guests do, but Jerry, one quick thing. there's th- This could be of some, some concern to lawyers where they just want to know what's going on, but it looks like we've got a new change, House Bill 5010. That's going to change, make make a a change to the disciplinary procedures. I couldn't discern how how significant this was. It says grievance procedures can some of them can now be called quote complaints. Why is that important? This particular bill was in response largely to the uh, the election challenges in twenty twenty. Ah, okay. Um, you know, there there were some concerns as to whether those who had filed grievances against lawyers who participated in those election challenges should have been doing such such a thing, and so and there was a concern whether they had standing if uh, those who filed the complaints. So, uh, so, so this bill actually is intended to streamline the grievance process a bit, and it, it and it essentially creates a standing sort of requirement for those who are filing those those complaints. So, if someone files a complaint and they have a judiciable interest in that dispute, and there's a list of those who fit into that category, uh, then it gets characterized as a complaint and then, and, and then goes through a different process than those who don't have standing or who's, they're called inquiries, but someone on the outside looking in. So it does change that process a little bit. And that, that, that will be news to a lot of lawyers. Yeah, I was, I was surprised. And that, that left me thinking, all right, we got to ask this one to, to Jerry. So Jerry, thank you for, for addressing that. Crystal, speaking of attorney discipline, 
I've, I've heard, and I, and you've probably, you're probably familiar with this family law gets a lot of attorney discipline type of issues coming in, you know, people complaining about their lawyers or they complain about the other party's lawyers. So I thought what a great segue into family law. We're going to, we just talked about attorney discipline, but you started out your, your update with saying the te- the 88th Texas legislature was, quote, a good one for the Texas Family Code. Y- you go into all the changes, but why did you love it so much? Well, interestingly enough, I think I loved it for what didn't get passed more so oh. than for what did get passed. Do tell. Do tell. We want the gossip. Okay. You know, there. you've already said it. Everybody has some connection to family law. Um, sure. If you have not had a family law dispute, somebody in your family has, your brother, <laughs> your sister, right. your children— and so everybody at the, in the Texas legislature thinks that they know how to do family law. And it turns out much of it is anecdotal to a constituent or the legislator themselves who right. want to dabble in this little thing that would have affected this one case they knew and forgetting about the 99.9% of the other family law cases. So there was a great right. deal of effort spent on not tinkering with some of our old and steady laws that have served us very well in the family law community. Okay. So you're, you're happy that they didn't overfix it. They didn't, they didn't fix what isn't broken. That's right. It looks like one of the most significant changes is in reimbursements. In, in reimbursements, you know, I guess from one spouse to the other, I'm assuming, and, and again, I've only dabbled in family court when I've had to help somebody, but is this referring to when the marital estate is used to, to effectively better the property, that, better the separate property of one of the spouses? Is that where this arises? Yes, close. So this was very, very significant mostly because it actually goes back to the old common law idea of reimbursement. Our statute, again, had been tinkered with over the years. We used to have this thing called economic contribution, which nobody really knew how to do, judges and lawyers alike. I remember that on the bar exam. You do? It required math. And I was like, I went went to law school, so I wouldn't have to do this. And then they're like, it's one third of this. And then I had to like relearn calculus. And it was... Yeah, it was. You had a numerator and a denominator and a bunch of family lawyers that didn't know algebra. Don't you be using words like that on this pod. This is a family <laughs> podcast. Numerator and denominator. Yeah. So, you know, you started off the podcast talking about nerd law. This is the nerdiest of nerd law <laughs> that you can possibly get. But another fellow board certified attorney who Jerry knows, Chris Nicholson, and I got to talking about reimbursement. I had a jury trial that had some reimbursement claims, and I was just so frustrated with the way the pattern jury charge was written. It didn't line up with the way our old case law was going. And I mean, we're talking about cases back from the 1900s that have not changed, that haven't been overturned. And so we went in and we set about and we changed the pattern jury charge uh, to reflect the case law. Well, it didn't now, the pattern jury charge matched the case law, but it didn't match the statute. We put the cart before the horse there a little bit. And so (laughs) (laughs) we crossed our fingers and hoped that we could get the statute done that would match the pattern jury charge and match the case law. And we've now completed our trifecta, all three match, all three line up, all three uh, mirror the equitable principles of exactly what you were saying. We've got three marital estates, spouses one separate, spouses two separate in the community estate. And for lack of a ah, better term, okay. they sometimes trade assets and resources back and forth and back and forth. Sure. And if you get a divorce, 
If there's one estate that had more benefits from the other estate, then you want to try and get that back. And, and that's what basically what reimbursement is. And it's now a statute that is in line with everything that we thought that equitable principle was supposed to be based on hundreds of years of case law. So can you walk us through, you know, for, for the uninitiated like me, right, who, who just, we think we know family law. And when somebody asks me about it, I know just enough to, to misquote them something, but I don't know enough to really know these details. So when it comes to something like reimbursement, how was the statute written and how is it written now? Like what's, what's the change and why is that significant? I, I know it aligns with the case law. So you're kind of liking that aspect of it, but how, how does it affect most family law cases on the ground? So the way the statute was written, it tried to give a laundry list of the various facts that would arise in, in a marriage that would that would give rise to a reimbursement claim, right? And it had a list of eight things that frankly didn't always make a lot of sense. Again, it some didn't of cover them everything, were, probably. <laughs> it did not cover everything. It wasn't supposed to, but it also had some holdovers from that economic contribution time that didn't make any sense. It was written in this complex way where most people didn't understand how to apply it to the facts of their case. And as you can imagine, when we have a laundry list, what happens? People say, well, it's not in the list, so you can't mm -hmm. do it. And that was never the intent of reimbursement. It was always supposed to be an equitable claim. Whatever facts made it unfair, you were supposed to be able to apply the reimbursement statute. But people got stuck on that laundry list. So we took it away. There's no longer a laundry list. And we narrowed it down to just the three different types of reimbursement you can have. One is for debts or liabilities that were paid. So, for example, uh, you have a, a somebody comes into marriage with a credit card debt. And then the two married, married couples say, well, we, we should use our resources to pay off that debt so you don't have debt anymore, honey. You know, it's, it's always great mm -hmm. when you're first married. Right. Of and course. then you get a divorce and you say, wait a second, we used all of our community assets to pay off your separate property debt. The community wants that back. And so that's a reimbursement claim that I'd say is in bucket number one. But then technically, when you divorce, isn't any debts that one spouse has inures to the other spouse? Like if I remember from my bar exam prep, it's that it's that when you divorce, whatever debts are owed by one spouse, the other spouse is still liable for them. So has has the legislature kind of fix that loophole or am I getting that loophole completely incorrect? Well, I mean, not exactly. I can get really nerdy on you and say that there is no such thing as separate property debt because it's not in the constitution, but that's not really how <laughs> okay. we handle it. I, that's oh. a whole, I mean, that's an hour long discussion on, on property and constitution, all that kind of stuff. She came to a gunfight with an F-16, man. Look at this. <laughs> Dang. Jerry, you and I need to just go home. Well, Crystal's once again reminding me why I don't do what she does. And every time something comes up that hits in her and on her turf, I happily refer them to her. <laughs> and then you go home and, and, and have your evening constitutional. Yes, I get it. <laughs> These are the nerdy things we fight about at happy hour. <laughs> this is after work hours y'all do this. No wonder y'all are smarter than me. Oh my gosh. But anyway, that's if you had this debt prior to marriage and, and the community estate pays it off, um, the community estate says that's not fair. Uh, yeah. We want that money back. That was always your debt. You should have found some other way to pay it. The second kind of debt is when you uh, improve 
the property of one estate. So another example, they have a separate property. One spouse has a separate property house. Before marriage, you come into marriage and you build a pool or you create a new master bedroom wing. You've enhanced the value of that property. You get a divorce. The court can't take that separate property house away from you. Well, if it's not fair that you benefited that estate, then the court can reimburse the community back the money spent to enhance that separate property. And the third one is what we call a Jensen claim. It's when one spouse spends all their time working on the separate property and not contributing to the community. So we just narrowed it down to those three basic things. Everything that you want to try in a reimbursement case is going to fall into one of those three buckets. And that's what it is now. So instead of a laundry list, it's now three categories. And that, that should, hopefully, until we get some smart lawyers who figure out how to bust it. It's that should cover everything. Should cover everything. Hey, Rocky, if I could chime in here real quick, you know, Crystal. No, yes, of course. Go ahead. (laughs) Crystal had mentioned, you know, being happy about things that didn't happen. And I bet one of them had to do with the business court we were talking about, where there's a specific exclusion for claims under the family code, because I know there was some concern about them getting pulled too close to the vortex, right? Right. (laughs) Getting roped in. So this is not in the update. So we need to talk about this. (laughs) All right. But guys, let's talk about this after we hear from our sponsors. This is this is a great way to break. And then we're going to come back. And this you will not read in the Texas Bar Journal. So guys, stay tuned. We're going to hear about the family law colliding with the business courts or maybe avoiding each other. We're going to figure that out in just a couple of minutes. We'll be right back. And we're back. And hopefully you were here when you heard the last bit. It looks like looks like our our two guests, you know, I thought they were going to play in their own sandboxes. I thought we had we had civil litigation and appellate law and we had family law and these two would just but it turns out it turns out we get to now combine it into at least I, I guess there's a community sandbox to use a family law term. So Jerry just got through telling us about how there's a carve out in the business court, in these new, newly formed business courts that intersects with family law. So Jerry, you want to tell us about that? There's quite a few carve outs, actually. You know, there's a lot of exclusions because you had a lot of stakeholders who wanted to make sure that, uh, like you said, if there's a sandbox to play in, they want to make sure it's a small enough sandbox for them and everybody else can stay out. Sure. And there's an, there's an express exclusion for claims under the family code that do not apply to the business court context, at least according to the statute. And so I, I know the family lawyers are happy about that. All right. So, so Crystal, are, are the family lawyers happy about that? And tell us, tell us the scenarios where you think this would come into play or, or be significant. Well, from what I understand, the judges that are going to be on this court are going to have been, you know, a business, been involved in the business litigation, civil sure. litigation type area who never want to touch family law, who have no <laughs> clue what's going on. And nor do we blame them. But, you know, those those generally aren't the judges you would want to hear family law, the ones that hate family law. However, we are unsure the way the carve-out is written. Oftentimes, uh, one spouse or both spouses own businesses. Sure. Or they own a part of a business, which is even worse. And sometimes we join that business into the divorce. And we really don't know if that happens in a divorce, whether or not the business owner or business partners can remove that divorce case into the business courts when one of the issues is going to be, for example, separation of of the partners, valuation of the company, partition, things of that nature. So we're still unsure if that carve-out is going to exclude all family law cases where there's an entity involved. 
And there, there is a supplemental jurisdiction to this court, I guess, where the parties could theoretically agree that some of these issues could be litigated in that court if they so chose. But that, like Crystal said, that's, there's still a question mark there as to exactly if they could still be pulled into it somehow. So we'll see. I guess the question then might arise when you have, say, a derivative claim where the spouses own it together and one of the spouses says, I was effectively shut out from decision making because of the way the other spouse just kind of usurped the business. And so if that occurs, then is that a family law question? Is that a business court question? And now that now that they're both separate, I suppose we're going to have to wait and see on that one. Jerry, what's your prediction on, on a question like that one? And then, Crystal, you'll get to weigh in as well. On something like that, I, I could easily see where that could somehow get sucked into this court. Into the business court? Uh, to, to the business court. Okay. I, I could see it happening. Or at least there, someone would try, you know, whether or not sure. they're successful or not is another issue. But, you know, you know, this whole business law or business court concept, to me, it's kind of the court of dreams, right? It's kind of if the, the philosophy is if they build it, they will come. The idea is to attract businesses here more so than they already are attracted to come to Texas, um, and so trying to figure out what the jurisdiction looks like and whether it's going to change or not, you know, as time goes on. I mean, that's going to be, you know, that's what we'll see what happens. But there will be some tweaks to this as it gets unfolded, you know, over the years. So and I bet we'll see circumstances where we'll get some of these disputes that try to get brought into the court. And the legislature will have to fix it. Crystal, what do you think? What's your prediction? I think Jerry's right. The parties may agree. Um, to something like that. If the primary dispute in the divorce is something related to the business, as you were saying, some kind of derivative claim or valuation issue or partition of the business, then I could see the parties wanting it to be in front of somebody who has a business expertise. So um, if that's the primary issue in the divorce, maybe so, but I think most family lawyers are going to do whatever they can to stay away from the business course. There becomes a procedural issue too then. Do you carve out that one that one aspect of this family case, put it into the business courts, let that play itself out and then come back into family court. That just drags everything on for a longer period. So I could I could see there being multiple issues with this, but we're going into this, this fascinating world of, of business courts and family law. Crystal, I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, you know, reimbursement played a a very dominating role in your update for obviously good reason but there there were some other updates as well and maybe a couple of them bear some mention here one is one is about protections for spouses from being spied upon effectively or tracked yeah sure this was pretty interesting to me uh, we have in when somebody files for divorce we have uh, TROs or temporary restraining orders sure. where the parties are temporarily restrained uh, while the divorce is pending from doing certain things that make total sense, right? Um, closing bank accounts, diverting money to another place, et cetera. And there's a laundry list of things that you can get in your temporary restraining order. And they added to that this year, you can restrain a party from tracking or monitoring personal property or motor vehicle in possession of a party without that party's effective consent. Mm -hmm. Effective consent is not defined on the civil side. It is on the penal side, but not on the civil side. So we don't know what effective consent means. Does filing for divorce mean you've withdrawn any consent to be followed? I, I don't know the answer to that. What I do know is that when you're married, before the divorce is filed, you often have things on your phone like uh, find my iPhone or vehicle apps mm -hmm. that help you unlock or remote start your car, but also tell you where that car might be located. Sure. Um, things that are very innocuous and don't seem that out of the ordinary for a married couple. But once you file for divorce, 
the question becomes, those, those temporary restraining orders go in place. Are you allowed to look at those apps that you've had all along? Are you allowed to do find my iPhone to locate your spouse? I, I don't know what's going to happen with those. My advice to clients is going to be get them off your phone. Don't access them. Don't do anything because we don't know what's going to happen with that. I mean, how do you even enforce that? I mean, if somebody's going to go look at an app and see where their iPhone is, then, <laughs> I mean, unless you go into the metadata of the phone and see when it was accessed, you know, which can be expensive. This might surprise you, but people are typically very emotional when they're going through a divorce. <laughs> <laughs> so they just blurt it out. When they find out yeah. where their spouse is, they generally go to that place or mention that they know <laughs> where their spouse has been. So there's, right. you know, in divorces, there's a little bit of that that comes into play where we find out. But you're absolutely right. If they're doing it surreptitiously, we're not going to know about a lot of it. There's also a portion of this that says you can't follow that spouse or cause somebody else to follow that spouse. In our line of business, we oftentimes hire private investigators. So we're unsure how this would relate to private investigators. There's a little corollary to that that says for the intent and purpose of harassing the other spouse. Mm. So I think some of us in the family law arena are saying, you know, if you hire a private investigator, for example, to determine whether or not a spouse is uh, drinking and driving with children in the car, you're not hiring a private investigator with the intent to harass that person. You're gathering evidence in the divorce mm. case. So it's still one of those gray areas where we don't know how that's going to play out in the long run. I think if your intentions are good, you're going to be okay. But to be safe, I would get all those apps off your phone if you're filing for divorce. Now, I guess final questions, because we are running short on time now. Jerry, I want to ask you, looking at the updates that have happened in the in the civil and appellate sections, and, and of course, the business courts, there's a lot of exciting things going on. Is there something that you wished would have been passed by the legislature that wasn't and that you're kind of secretly hoping will come into play in the next session? Well, most of the time, I like to think that the legislature would kind of leave us alone. <laughs> Agreed. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it seems like this past session, and I've heard this use, this term used by many others uh, who I've talked to about this, this session being an unprecedented session in terms of giving or putting you know, a, a new level of scrutiny on our civil justice system. And so mm. uh, whether it be the creation of new courts or tinkering with jurisdiction or, or creating some nuanced, uh, you know, interlocutory appeals and, and the type of work that, that the legislature puts on the plate of our judges at all levels, really, you know, the thing I would have liked to have seen happen and I hope still still happens is an increase in judicial compensation. You know, that's that's one of the reasons I started doing this in 2004, because I think our judges are woefully uncompensated for the for the role that they that they play. Uh, I mean, if you look at the numbers uh, statistically, they're way down the charts nationwide mm -hmm. where they should be, I think. And so I'm hopeful that that will be addressed because that will you know, the ripple effects of that would be to maintain good quality judges on the bench, attract good quality candidates to the bench. And uh, and I think everyone benefits if you have obviously the you know, the, the most qualified people serving in those roles. So that's what I would like to see happen. And hopefully it will sooner rather than later. Okay. I was not expecting that answer. That's actually, okay. <laughs> that's cool. I, I, and, I, and I love it. I think that's a great answer. Crystal, how about you? A aside from them leaving you the hell alone, if you had to say that, because I think, <laughs> Jerry, well, I'm, 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 I'm going to make a bumper answer. sticker. <laughs> I know. I was going to, I think we're going to make a bumper sticker out of, it's going to be, you know, Leave me the hell alone, Jerry Bullard, 2023. <laughs> but if, if there's something that, that you wish that they would improve in the family code. 
in, in the next legislative session, what would that be if you could have a wish list? This is actually pretty easy because we had an amicus statute that we promoted from in the Texas Family Law Foundation that, you know, helped set some better guidelines for lawyers who are appointed as amicus attorneys in family law cases. And it actually passed, but it was a victim to the the property tax session when the governor just started oh, right. axing you know, (laughs) vetoing certain bills that had nothing to do with property tax. Um, It was just one of the victims of the vetoes. And so I I would like to see that come back. And then we have long been advocating for a change in the child support system in Texas that has not changed since 1986. And we believe that that needs some revamping and to be more in line with what most states are doing around the nation regarding child support. Interesting. Okay. Well, I wish we could go into both of those topics with the judicial pay and and child support, but we are at the end of our time. And so guys, this was, this was fascinating. You know, legislative updates, they, they always sound dry, but then you get guys like, like Jerry and the, and ladies like Crystal just come in here and make this a really fun episode. Thank you both for, for being on here with us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. And of course, I want to thank you for for tuning in. And I want to encourage you to stay safe and be well. And I also want to urge you, go out and read the legislative updates in your Texas Bar Journal. There's some good stuff in there. So and, and it'll it'll also help you help you stay abreast of, of everything that's going on. So next time there's a family barbecue, you're gonna sound real smart. If you like what you heard today, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. Until next time, remember, life's a journey, folks. I'm Rocky Deer, signing off. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Go to TexasBar.com slash podcasts. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts and RSS. Find both the State Bar of Texas and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Or download the free app from Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, the State Bar of Texas, Legal Talk Network, or their respective officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, or subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.